0: Father, it's such a privilege to come to study your word tonight. We thank you, Father, for your word where it says, Study to show thyself approved, a workman having no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth or the word of God. Father, we just praise you for the wonderful privilege that we have the Holy Spirit here present with us and in each one of us to teach us. And I pray, Father, that the things we may study tonight may be such a blessing to us, Father. Father, that this word of... Uh, of yours, Father, which has been such a closed book for so many centuries, Father, should suddenly come to life and we might realise that it's our heritage, that it's for every one of us to read every book in it and to understand them fully, Father. Father, I'm claiming in Jesus' name that it may be one of the bricks in the wall tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, in the next two sessions we're going to cover the, the topic of the baptism of fire. Today we're going to do the background to the baptism of fire, and I'm actually going to define what we mean by the baptism of fire. And next time, then, we're going on to one of the parables which deals with the baptism of fire, namely the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, By way of introduction, and before we actually get on to the subject, I want, however, to dip very quickly into the subject of the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church. Now, in Guernsey, I've done this in great detail. Tonight, I want to do it uh, rapidly to give us an understanding. Because if you don't understand why the church was called a mystery, there are many passages in scripture which you would find difficult to understand. Now, let's, underst- let's turn straight to the book that actually defines the church as a mystery. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul is writing to this church and he's revealing what he knows about New Testament Christianity, about the church which God has established. And it's called the mystery of the church simply because the church is nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament. No, there is not one passage of the Old Testament that actually talks about the church. It was a complete mystery. They didn't have the slightest idea that God was going to do that. Not the slightest idea. It was a mystery which God himself had concealed... All right. Now, of course, once you know about the church, you can look back and there are many pictures and types of the church. And you can say, oh, that's glorious. But you've got to know about the church before you can do that. And nowhere in the Old Testament is the church specifically mentioned. This was God's little pearl that he was keeping until Jesus had died. And he kept it a secret. And Satan didn't know about it. And the angels didn't know about it. And the Jews, who thought they knew everything, they didn't know about it either. But the man that was used to reveal that mystery was Paul. He was a Jew himself, but he's called the apostle to the Gentiles. And it was to him that the revelation of the church was made. Now, it's the revelation of the church. Let's get this right as well. In the Old Testament, there were many Gentiles who were saved. Many Gentiles who were saved. In fact, it was the Jews' job to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And you know yourselves that Abraham led three Amorites to the Lord. You probably know their names, Anna, Eshkol, and Mamre. He led those three to the Lord. They were confederate of the same mind as him. What about Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite woman. She was a dweller in Jericho. She believed on the Lord. Why? Because, it, because of the testimony of Israel. She had heard how God had delivered Israel from the land of Egypt, and it was enough to save her. What about Ruth, a Moabitess? But she became a wonderful believer. You see, Gentiles were believers, even in the Old Testament. There were some who were believers. What about Melchizedek, who we don't know actually what nationality he was, probably a Jebusite, and they were really tough and a really wild group of people, the Jebusites. But he was a believer, and not only a believer, he was a high priest as well. And you remember that he had to go minister to Abraham just when Abraham needed it. Um, Melchizedek came on the scene. So it certainly wasn't a mystery that the Gentiles could be saved. The mystery was the church, that after Jesus died, God was going to do a marvellous thing Instead of there being Jews and Gentiles, he was going to combine them together and make one body out of them. And they weren't going to be Jews and they weren't going to be Gentiles. That's what the Bible says. In the, in the body of Christ, the church, there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile. Now, even if that had been written in the Old Testament, the Jews wouldn't have believed it. Because they were very proud of their position. But here was the mystery of the church. That the two were going to c- become one. And today, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a Jew, and you are not a Gentile. You now belong to a new group, and it's called the church. Fantastic. So there's no more any division between us. We are one. We are Christ ones. So you can split up the whole human race into three groups. Jews, Gentiles, and Christ ones. And there we are. Now that was the mystery. The mystery of the church, and it was revealed to Paul. And all of the teaching about the church is revealed in the Pauline epistles of the New Testament. It's revealed. Now, he talks about this in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin at verse 3. He's just been saying this is his ministry. How that, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery... The word revelation there is the same word as used for the book of the Revelation at the end of the New Testament. And it means that which is clearly revealed, that which is laid bare, that which uh, is uncovered. That's what it means. And while he was waiting on God in Arabia, God himself revealed to Paul the glorious mystery that had remained hidden in the Old Testament. The church was coming. Now, he goes on to define it. Now, then he writes in brackets, As I wrote a four in few words. Um, that may have been a reference to a book that he'd written to the Ephesians before this one. If it was, we have no record of it. Or it could be a reference to what he said in Ephesians chapter 2. But it's no matter to us. He said, i read the bit in brackets. As I wrote a four in few words. Whereby, when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now let's go back to verse 3, and let's miss out all the bit in brackets, which is parenthesis, and go straight on to (laughs) verse 5. How that, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery which in other ages was not made known. It was secret in the other ages. The Old Testament didn't have it. They didn't know. Abraham did not know about the church. Moses did not know about the church. Zechariah did not know about the church. Jeremiah did not know. John the Baptist did not know about the church. Paul did, and Jesus did. And the disciples didn't know either. That's why they had so much trouble, but we'll see that later on. Which in other ages then was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And verse 6 defines the mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. There's the mystery. The mystery of this wonderful church that we happen to belong to. We're one in Christ Jesus. One person. The body of Christ. There it is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. If you go down to verse 9... And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, the fellowship of the church, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. Been hidden away. And God revealed it. Praise <laughs> God. Who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent, to the purpose, that now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, that's the angels who didn't know about it before, might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. And the moment Jesus died, the church came forth. And the angels were stunned. Satan was shocked. He th- Satan thought he'd won. And suddenly he realized only the head has risen. The <laughs> body is still down there. And every day that the body stays down here, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're joined to the body. Well, that's not Satan's property. That's (laughs) God's property. And one day God's going to say, I think it's time to resurrect my body now. And up all the believers will go. Now, that was a mystery. Praise God. It was kept secret from Satan. Kept secret from all these people. And especially kept secret from the Jews. Uh, If you see in in chapter 2, let's read a few verses about this mystery. In verse 14... For he is our peace, who hath made both one. Both the Jews and the Gentiles have been made one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So you're a Jew, so what? I'm a Gentile, we're one in Christ. Hallelujah. 16. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came, And preach peace to you which were afar off, the Gentiles, and to them that were nigh. Alright? Now, there's the mystery. And it was never mentioned in the Old Testament. Never. That's why the Jews had so much trouble. You see, the Jews thought the time plan of God was simple. They thought that all it consisted of was Jewish history, the Messiah would then come... And he would establish the kingdom. That's what they thought it was. Alright? Jewish history would just go on and on. Then the Messiah would come. He'd be proud of them and thrilled. He'd come down. He'd establish the kingdom there on earth. That was all that they could see. So that when they expected Messiah, they were expecting someone to overthrow the Romans and to establish his kingdom immediately. And the disciples thought exactly the same thing. That's why they had the trouble. Jesus was saying he's the Messiah, but he was also talking about his death. Couldn't get it. What, what do you mean? You're coming to overthrow the... Ra- uh, we've been taught, you're coming to establish the kingdom. They couldn't see it. Funnily enough, they didn't get it, even after he'd been resurrected. Um, If we go to Acts chapter 1, we see the last question they actually ask him before he is taken up into heaven. Now, he's been resurrected 40 days now. He's been on the earth 40 days, and he's now being taken up into heaven. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, This is their last question to him. They'd seen him die, they'd seen him resurrected, but they still thought he was going to establish the kingdom. And so they say to him, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Is this it now, Lord? We've waited 40 days, you've been resurrected 40 days, and you still haven't done anything. Is this it? Is this why we've all come together to see it? And the Lord, they know nothing about the church, you realize. It's a complete mystery to them. The Lord speaks to them and says, He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. Praise God. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He said, Don't worry about the kingdom. Get on with the church. (laughs) That's right. You people, you're going to establish the church and you need the power of the Holy Ghost upon you to establish the church. Every person in this room needs the power of the Holy Ghost. Mm. You need it, praise God. They needed it. But they'd been taught that the kingdom would come. As soon as Messiah came, he would establish the kingdom. And the Jews had trouble in the Old Testament because they believed that. All of the Jewish teachers had trouble. Because they believed that Messiah was going to be King of Israel He was going to come in great power and authority. But when they read other passages, they saw a Messiah which wasn't like that. Isaiah chapter 53, for example. They saw a suffering servant of a Messiah who was coming and he was going to be beaten up. And he was going to be bruised. And he was going to be rejected. And he was going to be put on a cross to (laughs) die. They couldn't reconcile that. What? What? But no, no, no. No, it's not going to be like that. He's going to come as king. They couldn't see it. Well, we, now, because we happen to be in the church, we can see the full picture. So let's actually get the true picture as it comes to us now. Here it is. We've got Jewish history. Then the Messiah came first time. That was the Lord Jesus. Not as king. Not to establish the kingdom. He came... ...to die for the sins of the whole world. That's it. The suffering servant come from God. And he came specifically that the Jews may believe that he is their Messiah. But they didn't. They rejected him. And you know that Jesus, while he was on the earth, he only came to Israel. He only came to minister to Israel. That was his purpose. Okay, now we see that in many, many passages. Let's just have a look at two, just to sort of confirm it. Uh, In the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be in Matthew a great deal tonight. In the Gospel of Matthew 15, chapter 15. And we have a a wonderful uh, woman who comes to see him. I'm very fond of this woman indeed. She is a believer. We know that because she addresses him as Lord. This is Matthew 15... 21. She addresses him as Lord and she worships him. This woman has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know how she came to the Lord, but come she has. Chapter 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed unto the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, and you know what the Canaanites were like, the woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her, not a word. He just stood there and looked. And his disciples came. These were Jews. She was only a Canaanite woman. Huh. His disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away. For she crieth after her, oh she's bothering us Lord, send her away, she's not a a Jew. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm Israel's king, I've come to minister only to Israel, he says to her. Now I wonder whether you'd be put off by that. He wanted to see what her faith was like. And sometimes God seems to turn his back on us occasionally. It's then that he really sees the metal that you're made out of. Because now comes one of the most beautiful passages in scripture. Then she came, she wasn't put off by this, not at all. And she wasn't going to be put off either. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. He seemed to have been silent. He seemed to have put her off, but she was thrown with him. She's, she knew who she wanted to worship. She worshipped him and she said, Lord, help me. You're the only one that can help me, Lord. It's got to be you. But he answered and said, it is not meat, which means it is not right. It is not right to take the children's bread, the Jews' bread, and cast it to the dogs. Now, he's being really rude. He's calling her a dog, you see, and that was a, a very rude term indeed in the ancient world. It's not right that I take the children's food, I've come for Israel, and cast it to you dogs. And she's not put off a bit. She then says, and she said, truth, Lord, that's right, that's right. Yet the dogs, and the word there means a little puppy dog, a gentle dog, a small dog, a frightened dog, a weak dog. Yea, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And she said, Lord, I just want a crumb, just a little crumb from you, and that's good enough for me. That's all I need. Only take one of your crumbs and my daughter will be all right. You see? And Jesus answered and said unto her, woman, great is thy faith. No verb there which emphasizes it. Great thy faith. You've got tremendous faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, that meant that the Jews could never say that Jesus was so busy ministering to the Gentiles, he didn't care about the Jews. He came specifically to minister to the Jews. You see? But when the believers came, by faith, they received from him exactly what they wanted. And the Jews, who were so proud, they rejected him. This Canaanite woman had probably travelled a great distance just to come to Jesus. And and there were the Jews rejecting him on every hand. Let's have a look at just another one quickly. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, And uh, verse 5, you remember he's calling now 12 disciples and he's sending them out. And this is what he says to the disciples. (laughs) This is what he says. Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter not. There we are. Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I want you to minister specifically to Israel, he says. Alright? Now that's what he came to do. So let's go back to the, the correct time pattern. You had Jewish history. Jesus came to Israel and they rejected him. Then the mystery of the church came in. Now, we know that. They didn't know it. And the church will be on the earth for thousands of years, 2,000 or whatever number of years it is. And then, God's going to remove the church. We call that the rapture of the church. We're all going to go. Jew and Gentile, you're going to go. Why? Because you're not a Jew anymore and you're not a Gentile anymore. You're a church one. Praise God. A Christ one. You're going to go. The rapture of the church. Then, Jewish history comes back. And we have seven years of Jewish history, of a terrible time of Jewish history, the tribulation. Then the Messiah's coming again, second advent. The second advent of the Messiah, the second coming of Christ. And he's coming this time as a king. This time with the power. This time to establish the kingdom of God. And as soon as he's come, the kingdom, or the millennium, will be established. Now the Jews didn't understand that, they couldn't understand it. They looked, and they looked, and they looked, and they couldn't see it. And there are so many passages in the Old Testament, which I will not go over tonight, where you find that God is talking about Jewish history before the Messiah first came, and he suddenly jumps over to the kingdom. You see? And the mystery of the church is the sort of comma that's actually put in the New Testament. God has put brackets in there, but he hasn't told them what's in the brackets. So that you get a word coming across here, and then it jumps the whole of this and goes on to the kingdom period. It was the mystery of the church. Now, I think if we bear that in mind, that's very helpful. Because I find most Christians are so preoccupied with the church, they think that everything in the Bible applies to the church. They immediately jump to the conclusion. That's why you get Christians who are trying to keep the Ten Commandments. You see? Yeah, really trying to. Not knowing, of course, that as James explains beautifully, if you've broken it in one part, you've broken the whole lot. So if there's ever been one second of your life where you haven't loved the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, you've broken the law. That's the reason that we get Christians who try to keep the Sabbath days. That's why we get Christians who really think that there's only a Levitical priesthood, you see? That that, that we aren't all priests, as the New Testament defines. There are things, of course, in the New Testament that we can learn wonderful parallels, as it were. We have so much to learn from the stories and from the the, uh, truth that's in the Old Testament. But to apply it to the church solely, which is what most Christians try and do, actually means that we understand very badly passages in the Old Testament. And in fact some passages become incomprehensible if we try and apply them to the church. And the reason I've said that is because the moment we talk about the baptism of fire, immediately most, most Christians say, oh I wonder whether I've been baptised with fire. <laughs> and they immediately relate it to themselves. Now I don't mind, there are parallels God is so clever and he's such a genius that many things in the Old Testament have a parallel in the church. And that's glorious. But you see, we've got to be accurate to the word of God. And very often, well actually I bought a booklet uh, a few years ago before I knew what the baptism with fire really was. And it said, baptism with fire. And when I read it, it was all about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, this person had said, oh it's the same thing. And they were trying to relate it to the church. And uh, I don't know what the Trade Descriptions Act would say about that, you know, <laughs> having one, one name on the outside and talking about something else. But it's wrong. And actually, if you know anything about the Bible, you know it's wrong for two reasons. One, in the Bible, fire always represents judgment. Never means anything else. It's judgment. It's sometimes used for purifying, but even that's judgment. You see, judgment of rubbish inside. Okay, it's certainly not used for power. It's always a judgment. So when we're talking about the baptism of fire, we are talking about a judgment specifically. The other reason is that they always quote the passage which I'm heading for tonight, Matthew chapter 3. And they ignore the fact that the whole context is about judgment. And they take the one verse out... And they use it as a pretext to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you see, under the name of the baptism of fire. Um, I think that once we know that there are vast passages in the Old Testament which deal with the baptism of fire, we realize that there's something else involved that we've got to know about. Now some Christians think that the baptism of fire is the refining that goes on in believers. I don't object to that. They think that it's the testing of our faith as defined in 1 Peter 1, 1.7. I don't mind about that. As long as you see what it really is as well. I don't mind people talking about the parallels in the church. As long as they talk about what it really was about for Israel. You see? And I, I think it's glorious the way that God has a dual purpose in the things that we learn. For example, the moment you are saved, God wants to baptise you with the Holy Spirit and he wants to purify your life. That's true. But if you just restrict the baptism of fire to that, you've missed most of the glory of the whole principle. Let me define what we mean by the baptism of fire. And then we'll see some passages actually that are on it. The baptism of fire is the name given to the judgment of Israel at the end of the tribulation. It's the name given to the judgment of Israel at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes again, the second advent of Christ. Alright? It's a specific judgment for Israel, the baptism of fire. And at that time, you're going to have believers and unbelievers all living together. And the baptism of fire is when Jesus comes along and he puts all the believers in one part, and all the believers in the other part, And he separates them. That's the baptism of fire. I'll show you scriptures on that later on. But that specifically is what the baptism of fire is all about. And it occurs at the second advent of Christ, when the Messiah comes again. Now there's a beautiful picture of it. And let's uh, actually have a look in Matthew again. Matthew chapter 24, where the Lord gives an analogy to what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 24, (coughs) and beginning verse 36. Matthew 24, verse 36. And we'll see in this passage how we have been guilty of thinking everything applies to the church. We'll see exactly our mistake. Verse 36. Now remember, he's not talking about the rapture of the church. The whole of the context is about the establishment of the temple, is about the tribulation, about armies around Jerusalem, and about Jesus coming again as king, as lord, in almighty power. Now he says, verse 36, what we've already heard him say in Acts seven. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my father Only. The day that Jesus comes again to establish the kingdom, no one knows the date of at all. Not one person. Not one person. Only the Father. Now, here's the analogy, verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, do you see the picture? He says, as Noah's time was, that's what it's going to be like when I come again. It actually says, so so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That is not a reference to the rapture of the church. Because when we're talking about the rapture of the church we meet him in the air. Here the Son of Man is coming to the earth. That's seven years after the rapture of the church. Right, now he says, verse 38, for as in the days that were before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the The day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That passage, verse 38, simply means they were so occupied living that they didn't have time for God. And that's what it's going to be like at the end of the tribulation. They will be so occupied living they will not have time for God. Of course it's going to be true then. It's true now. Right? Now let's have a look at the analogy, because if we understand Noah's flood, we'll understand what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. Now before Noah's flood came, believers and unbelievers were living together. Then the judgment came. The floodwaters came onto the earth. And every unbeliever was removed. They all died and were taken away and kept for judgment. The unbelievers were removed. The believers stayed on the earth. Now, I'm going to say that again. In the days of Noah, all the unbelievers were taken away. The believers stayed. And when the floodwaters had gone down, the believers came out onto the earth and they filled the earth and started uh, uh, multiplying. And soon you had a huge civilization developed again. All right? Now what, there's the analogy. So what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation? All the unbelievers are going to be taken away. Yes, the unbelievers are going to be taken away. All the believers are going to go through and they're going to populate the earth in the kingdom. And they're going to start multiplying and having children. And there'll be a population explosion in the kingdom. But that can't happen until the unbelievers have been taken away. He doesn't finish the analogy there, read on. Then, and he means when the Son of Man's coming again, shall two be in the field, the one should be taken, the other left. The unbeliever is taken. The believer is left. Ah. Now, do you see, I don't mind if you talk about the rapture of the church using that passage. But if you are strictly true to the context, the unbeliever is taken away, not the believer. The believer stays behind, as it was in the days of Noah. <laughs> Now, I suspect you, like me, have heard many sermons in which the rapture of the church is talked about, yes? And it all says, you see, that the church is being taken away. Well, it's a pity, that's all. They haven't seen the analogy. The analogy is with Noah. And the unbelievers are gathered together and they're removed. The believers then go through to people of the earth. Now, I'm sorry if this is shocking you, but I'm actually being true to the Word of God at this particular point. And that's the baptism of fire. When the removal of the unbeliever occurs, that is exactly what we mean by the baptism of fire. The unbeliever's taken away, the believers stay on the earth, and they go through to people the millennium. Let's read it. Then shall two be in the field, the one should be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one should be taken and the other left. There it is. And the analogy is complete. So at the end of the tribulation, there's a judgment, and only the believers go through to people the earth in the millennium. Let's see in the Old Testament before we go any further. All right, now this uh, particular baptism of fire is defined clearly in the Old Testament in several passages. Uh, Let's take, first of all, Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel chapter 20 praise the Lord. Now this may be a shock to some of you. I hope it's going to cause you to rethink about several passages. Ezekiel chapter 20, in beginning verse 33 where we have a prophecy of the judgment of Israel. All right so Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, that judgment, will I rule over you and I will bring you out from the people. And will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And at the end of the tribulation, all the Jews are going to be gathered from every nation of the world. And they're going to be taken into a wilderness area in Israel. And God's going to sort them out. The unbelievers sorted out from the believers. Right. Verse 35. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people... And there will I plead with you face to face. Doesn't that seem nice? Well, unfortunately, it's a mistranslation. The word "plead" there is the Hebrew shafat, shaphat, s h a p h a t, shaphat, and it means to judge. I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I judge you face to face. Every person, every one of you, is going to be judged right there, face to face. And here, verse 36, like as I judged your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. And you remember what happened to the fathers, don't you, in the wilderness. They were judged. Not one of them entered the promised land. And so, not one unbeliever is going to enter into the kingdom here. That's the point. He judged them. Like as I judged your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I judge you, saith the Lord God, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, that's judgment, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And the covenants are all going to be restored to Israel in the kingdom. Alright, that's another subject We won't deal with it here. Verse 38 is actually the baptism of fire. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country wherein they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. There it is. That's the baptism of fire. All the rebels purged out. No mention of fire yet, so let's go on to a passage that actually... Gives us some fire, shall we? It's nice to see this. Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. And <clears throat> verse 8 and verse 9. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. Verse 8. And it shall come to pass, that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. In the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews will die and perish in the land. That's a terrible time, the tribulation. It's going to be the worst time that the Jews have ever known. It's described in Deuteronomy 4 as Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble, and that's exactly what it's going to be. Two-thirds will die. What's going to happen to the one-third? But the one-third shall be left in the land. Verse 9, And I will bring the third part through the fire. That I'm going to judge the third part that remains. There's the baptism of fire. I'm going to bring them through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and try them as gold is tried. Now, when silver is refined, all the dross is skimmed off the surface. He's going to try them and all the unbelievers are going to be skimmed off, leaving only the believers. Now, that's what we mean by the baptism of fire. They shall call on my name. I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. They shall say, the Lord is my God. Praise the wonderful name of Jesus. Let's see another one. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, just before the book of Matthew. Malachi chapter 3. All right, now verse 2, I think we'll begin at. Verse 1 shows us the two messiahs, actually, but we'll begin verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? That's how fearful and terrible it's going to be. Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. (laughs) Well, now what's fuller's soap? A fuller was a laundryman. And the fuller's pool in um, Jerusalem was where they all went to do their washing. And full of soap was really strong, powerful stuff. It had to be in these days. The moment you put full of soap in, all the rubbish and all the insects and all the lice died off and floated to the surface. That's just what it's going to be like, he says. Uh, there's going to be a judgment. All the dirt and scum are going to be removed, leave, leave, leaving behind the clean linen. All right? Now, that's the baptism of fire. There it is. Uh, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Verse 3 He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He's going to judge them. And even the sons of Levi, the priests, are going to be judged. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. And here we get the baptism of fire again in verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear me not, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So there we've got a judgment. We have a separation between the believers and the unbelievers, and that's the baptism of fire at the end of the tribulation, when the Messiah comes. Alright, let's, let's develop it just a little further now. What's going to happen to the believers when they go through into the kingdom? And here's the glory. They're all going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The whole earth is going to not only have believers on, it, they're all going to be full of the Holy Ghost. How do we know that? Well, there's another prophecy that tells us that. The prophecy in the book of Joel. The book of Joel and chapter 2. Right, the book of Joel, chapter 2, <clears throat> and verse 28. It's going to be a millennium and a half, it really will be, if you'll forgive the phrase. It's going to be wonderful. The book of Joel, chapter 2, and beginning verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards. What's afterwards mean? This is after the second advent. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now have a look at this. Verse 28. He's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And all means all. Every single person is going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, at the beginning. And he defines it. He then goes on. Sex is going to make no difference. Whether you're a man or a woman, you're both going to receive of God. It says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your age doesn't matter. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And your class doesn't matter either. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. The rest of the passage, of course, tells what's going to happen at the second advent. There's going to be wonders in the heaven. The sun will be darkened. Do you remember? And all people will see the sign of the Son of Man coming in glory and in the clouds. Now that's a fantastic beginning. Praise God that, of course, there's a parallel when the church began as well. You see? You see? Fine, we all know about the parallel, what happened on the day of Pentecost. We all know what happened. But don't be so occupied with the parallel, you forget what's going to happen in the millennium. Because it's glorious what's going to happen in the millennium. And this is definitely in the last days. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and see what Peter was meaning. Acts chapter 2. Because he actually quotes the passage that I've just read in Joel. Alright? He actually quotes it. Now you remember what's happened. The Holy Spirit has come upon them in such power, and they're making such a racket in this upper room, that all these devout Jews from every nation who know the prophet Joel backwards, they have no trouble finding it. They find it instantly. They know exactly where it is. They've all gathered together because they've heard the noise. And they think they're all drunk. And they're accusing these Christians of being drunk, though it's only the third hour of the day, you see. And Peter, having been filled with the Holy Ghost, stands up and he preaches to them and he says, Why are you surprised? Why are you surprised at this? Haven't you read the book of Joel? don't you know that this is going to happen uh, in the future, in the millennium, just like it says in, in the book of Joel? Don't you? Know? Why are you so surprised, you Bible scholars? I thought you knew all about this. He is in no way saying that it's a complete fulfillment, obviously, because he actually reads it right through. By the way, some scholars in verse 16, uh, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, they actually say that's a Greek idiom, meaning not this is that, sort of implying it's a fulfilment, but this is like that. This is a similar type of thing that Joel was talking about. And you can understand that, because the Jews would understand that fully. And they'd say, oh, I see. Yes, and they'd be very attentive to what Peter had to say. However, if you read the context, you can find that he was in no way saying that what happened on the day of Pentecost was a Complete fulfillment. Because he goes down. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. He's just quoting it verbatim out of Joel. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. Now, in verse 19, he doesn't stop there. He then goes on. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. None of these have come to pass. You see? Uh, He goes on. The sun should be turned into darkness. The sun had not been turned into darkness at the time that the spirit was poured out. And the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now he's actually relating it to the day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. And he's saying, don't be so shocked, you people. This is a parallel situation to what's going to happen on that great and terrible day of the Lord. Don't be so amazed. You see, now he's drawing a parallel at that particular point. Oh, this is going to be a glorious time in the kingdom. All of them baptized in the Holy Spirit. How wonderful. Uh, If you turn back to Acts 1 and verse 5, you actually get Jesus... Quoting the passage we're now heading to. And we're coming to it. Matthew chapter 3. And he doesn't quote it exactly. He misses out the bit about the fire. Why? Because he's talking to people who are going to make up the church. Alright? And here it says, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. He doesn't say, You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire, many days hence. You see, he doesn't say that. He misses out, conveniently, the fact of the fire. Right, now we're ready now for Matthew chapter 3. And so we're coming through and we will see how it's all a passage of judgment. And remember that they are ministering to the Jews at this particular point. John is busy baptizing the people of Israel. All right? (coughs) And here they come. I think we'll begin verse 7. But when he saw, this is John the Baptist, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's talking about judgment. There is wrath coming upon you. Who's told you to run away? And uh, that's a pretty rude thing to say, but John knew what was in these people. They were religious people. They did not want the truth at all. What had happened was, John the Baptist was getting so many crowds of people that the Sadducees and Pharisees were afraid that they would lose their influence over the people. So they thought, oh, well, we'd better go along and be baptised then. Then the people would think, well, that's all right. We're, we're in it, as it were. <laughs> we're involved. The moment John sees them, he says, well, it doesn't come out, oh, generation of vipers. It's actually, oh, offspring of vipers. Vipers' children, he says. There we are. Whoa, that must have hurt them. They were coming in their pride, in their long robes, to be baptised. And in front of all this crowd, not in secret, in front of the whole crowd, John says, you offspring of vipers. There you are. And he'd seen vipers in the desert. And the funny thing about vipers is, as soon as you light a fire, they scuttle away to their holes. He'd seen it happen. He says, oh, you're scuttling away from the fire, are you? There's judgment coming upon you, and you're trying to get out of it. Well, you can't, because you're not really believers that's the point you're religious you're devout but you haven't believed and he he defines that verse 8 bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance give up your hypocrisy give up your pride and your self-righteousness believe on the lord jesus christ that's what he told the people to do to believe on the one who was to come after him that is on the lord jesus and they of course were so proud being jews they thought oh well i'm a jew i must be saved You see? Just like people we have in our day who say, "Would I go to church every Sunday. I must be saved. And it's not true. And he says, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. We're Jews. Abraham is our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And he points to the pebbles in the Jordan. Out of these stones in the Jordan... God can raise up Jewish people. Right? Don't think that automatically saves you. Certainly does not. And here's the baptism of fire. Verse 10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. There it is. And the implication is that the good trees remain standing. The bad trees are cut down and are removed. The good trees stay where they are. There's going to be a sorting out, he says. There's going to be a judgment. And you watch it, you Pharisees and you Sadducees. You're going to be cut down. The axe is coming and it's going to cut you down. The whole passage is about judgment. All right? Who's going to do that? Well, he says, I'm not. There's one coming after me who's going to do it. He's mightier than I am. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, stronger, more powerful than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And what he's referring to is when Jesus comes as a mighty king, he says he's mightier than I I am, there's going to be a judgment. It's going to involve a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. And they're both going to be involved. Because when the Lord sits in judgment on the Jews at the end of the tribulation, the ones that pass through the fire and come through, they're going to be automatically baptized with the Holy Spirit. The others are going to feel the judgment and they will be removed. There it is. He's going to do the judging, John says. I'm not going to, he's going to. And in case you think I'm fiddling it, notice the next verse whose fan is in his hand he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat up into the garner but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire and how convenient these people are they take the one verse out if they want to talk about the baptism of the spirit and they forget the whole context now john was not an idiot he talked logically point upon point upon point in verse 10 we've got judgment In verse 12, we've got judgment. He doesn't suddenly change the subject and start talking about the church in the middle. He doesn't. Now, what's this fan? The fan is a grain shovel. And what they used to do, they used to pour all of their grain into a particular room. And the animals used to tread it down until the chaff and the wheat fell apart. Then they used to take a grain shovel, throw it up, the grain and the chaff, up into the air... And the wind used to come and blow the chaff away, leaving the grain behind. And that's the baptism of fire. The separation of the good grain from the chaff. There it is. Alright, so whose uh, grain shovel is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor. He's going to clean the whole floor out. He'll (laughs) gather the wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff. With unquenchable fire. And when is that going to happen? That is the end of the tribulation and the second advent of Christ. That's what we mean by the baptism of fire. And the wheat's going to go through into the kingdom. Praise God. Now you see, the whole of the passage from verse 7 to verse 12 is about judgment. It is not talking about the power in the church. It is not talking about the purity of the church. These men didn't know about the church. It's not. And when Jesus redefines it for the church, he says, well, I keep the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, all right. Not a mention of fire coming upon them. You see? And again, it's a parallel between what is going to happen in Israel and what's going to happen in the church. And these parallels are wonderful, as long as you see the original as well. Okay? Now, there are many parables that actually deal with the baptism of fire. The wheat and the tares is the baptism of fire. The good and the bad fish. The faithful servant. The parable of the ten virgins. These are all parables about the baptism of fire. They are parables about the time when God will judge Israel. He'll separate the unbelievers from the believers. The believers will go through into the kingdom. The unbelievers will be kept ready for judgment. Alright? Now then, we are now ready... To go on next week to consider the very good parable, the very easy parable of the ten virgins. Having covered all of tonight, if you've understood it, you should be very ready indeed for the parable of the ten virgins. May God bless his word to our hearts and may we be faithful in every part to him. Amen. Praise God.